superior news and issues from a superior point of view. The Minnesota Ballet presents the world premiere by a Wisconsin-born, world-class choreographer. There are moments that are heartfelt and moments of levity. I'm coming home, baby, now. But first... Would you like to ride in my beautiful all right, whatever the Chinese balloon was doing over the U.S. last week, it wasn't to show off its beauty. From that altitude, it could probably see me. It's a reminder to look at the sky. Astro Bob is here to guide us. Welcome to Simply Superior, I'm Robin Washington. Last week, practically the whole country was wondering about a high-flying balloon from China making its way across the skies of the United States. Chinese officials claimed it was a weather balloon, while our government said it was engaged in spying. Whatever it was doing, it was shot down last Saturday. Someone who can tell us a lot about what's in the sky is Bob King, also known as Astro Bob. His specialty is heavenly bodies usually a bit further away, if not back in time a few million years. But he can also tell you if a shiny object in the night sky is a planet, a comet winging its way by Earth for a visit, or the International Space Station, and whether you need to worry about it. He's the author of the long-running Astrobob column in the Duluth News Tribune, as well as several books about amateur astronomy. And he joins me now. Welcome to Simply Superior, Bob King. Well, thanks for having me, Robin. Great to be here. So was the Chinese balloon visible in our area? Because when I first heard about it, it was over Montana, and then it was going somewhere. Next thing I knew, it was shot down over South Carolina. Uh, as far as I know, it was not. It looked like the path was further west, and then it went south of us. So, yeah, I really I would have loved to have seen it, but... Uh, unfortunately, not not this Chinese weather balloon. You would have loved to have seen it, but maybe it saw you. So, <laughs> how far from up? that altitude? Uh-huh. It could probably see me. Uh, I heard it was somewhere in excess of sixty thousand feet. So, you know, when you're up that high, you get a pretty broad view. Hmm. That's about twice as high as a normal airliner. Yeah, um, I think they go up about, what, uh, 35,000, 40,000 feet? Right. So definitely yeah. above the normal height for a, like a transcontinental flight. So how unusual was it to get on our radar screen? That's the first of several puns I'm probably going to make. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm no expert on, I guess, uh, spy balloons, but um, weather balloons are fairly commonly launched like twice a day from many many uh stations you know national weather service localities across the united states including the twin cities area so those look like the chinese balloon have you ever seen a weather balloon one of those national weather service i wouldn't know because i need to be looking out there with uh astro bob who can tell me exactly what i'm looking at you know uh you took me out i think we were looking at a comet a few years ago That's and, right, yeah. right and the international space station went by and you said look at that and i said what's that he said that's the international space station so uh, i mean there's a lot of our human-made space junk out there correct Yes, a lot of it. Um, I, if you don't mind, I wanted to relate a story about a weather balloon, though, and a UFO, because sure. they all kind of fit together here with the Chinese balloon. Uh, these weather balloons are white, and they look kind of like 
the full moon, but a lot smaller in the distance. And one morning, I was just walking outside the house here just to take a walk before breakfast. And I looked to my left, and in the northern sky, there was a small white dot against the blue sky, way far away. And I looked and thought, is this going to be it? Will this be my first UFO that I'll ever <laughs> see in my life? And the first thing I did was get more magnification on it. So I went back in the house and I grabbed a pair of binoculars and looked at this thing. And then I could see a little payload. They call it the radio sound. It's dangling below the balloon, and that carries the instruments that measure the temperature, the humidity, the wind speed, and so forth, and then transmits it back to a station on the ground. And it was honestly the first time in my life, and this was maybe two years ago, that I had seen uh, a weather balloon. And I watched it for about 10 minutes or so as it floated away. And those balloons can sometimes reach over 100,000 feet. And then what eventually happens is that the balloon will burst at altitude, and then that package of instruments will come down by a parachute. And sometimes it's just picked up by people like you and me. We might find it in our backyard one day, and then there's an address on it to mail it. <laughs> so it can get back to the weather service. But as far as using spy balloons, uh, it just it does seem something like from back in the Cold War days. But they do appear similar. So um, speaking yeah, it was of, pretty, it was great that they got it. They waited for it to get over the coast, and then and now they've got pieces of it. You've seen the pictures, pieces of it. They hauled aboard a boat, and I'm sure they're eagerly they've got that stuff back to the laboratory now. I know it went to the FBI just today, and they're examining it. So it's like a free sample of Chinese technology. Right. Thank you. Thank you, China. <laughs> Whether or not it was what they said it was. Pun number two. We're speaking with Bob King, a.k.a. Astro Bob. He's the author of several books, Urban Legends from Space, The Biggest Myths About Space Demystified, The Night Sky with the Naked Eye, and Wonders of the Night Sky You Must See Before You Die. So moving on to other, uh, I guess, real celestial bodies and highlights. Uh, what about this month and this season? What are some of our celestial, by the way, highlights is also a pun, highlights. <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> yeah. And they are very, very high. I wish I could say that it's a great time to look for the International Space Station. Uh, it is, except um, it's going to be returning to the morning sky for viewing about mid-month in February. So you have to get up at four and five o'clock in the morning to look, which is mostly inconvenient for people. So uh, in March, it will return again to the evening sky. Um, so besides the space station, and by the way, there is a Chinese space station. Um, just recently, both the International Space Station and the Chinese station, which is called the Heavenly Palace, or Tiangong, uh, they were visible simultaneously in the evening sky. And this was just about two weeks ago. So you could go on and look at the International Space Station off to the north, and then a few minutes later, you'd look to the south and see the Chinese space station. Maybe they were spying on each other. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but as far as seeing some really cool stuff at the moment, this week and next, if you face to the southwest, which is about the direction the sun sets in February, you will see around 45 minutes to an hour. Give it an hour after sunset. You'll see two bright planets the lower one which is the brighter one is venus and then the one above venus is jupiter 
And those two planets right now are about, if you reach your arm out, they're about two bald fists apart in the sky. But each night that passes, they're getting closer and closer and closer together so that by March 1st, the two of them will be right next to each other in a really, really close conjunction again in the southwestern sky an hour after sunset. So they'll be fun to watch approach each other. And then that conjunction should be pretty spectacular. And it's really cool because Venus is moving upward from the sun and Jupiter is gradually dropping down in the west. So the two shall meet very soon. Which would be a very large looking object, right? If we look at them from our vantage point and they almost appear to be one. Well, they won't merge, but they'll. you'll look at them and you'll see two bright objects right next to each other. Not quite touching. I've always got Jupiter on my mind because of a silly family story involving my brother who caught me up from, uh, this was in Chicago, across town in the middle of the night once when I was 19 and said, look outside, there's something big out there. And, and today we would have said a Chinese weather balloon, but whatever. And it took me about a half hour to wake up and uh, figure out what he was talking about. And we actually figured out it was Jupiter. And for whatever reason, Jupiter was really, really bright. So uh, oh, gosh, I ended up, yeah, I ended up following Jupiter. That was in the fall, uh, all that fall. And I had actually taken a trip to Mexico and it was like my guidepost or whatever. Uh, it is, of course, our largest planet, but is it always the largest thing? Again, Chinese weather balloons notwithstanding, uh, the largest thing in the sky other than the sun and the moon? Um, well, it's physically the largest planet, right? Well, yeah, like, right. I mean, the largest visible thing. Right, right. It's 11 times the size of the Earth. Um, it's pretty far away, but it is so big and it's cloudy there all the time. So if the clouds reflect the light that makes Jupiter very very bright but the brightest of all the planets is venus actually mm -hmm. and venus yeah venus is um like 20 times or so brighter than jupiter for two reasons first venus is closer to us than jupiter and it's covered in clouds uh, and even though it's a lot smaller than jupiter because it's so much closer it can appear quite a bit brighter mm -hmm. so um, it is the brightest, followed by Jupiter. Occasionally, Mars can become brighter than Jupiter, but Venus rules above them all. all right. And it's nice that you've got the two brightest planets closing in on one another in the evening sky. Mm -hmm. We're speaking with Bob King, a.k.a. Astro Bob. He's the author of the books Urban Legends from Space, The Biggest Myths About Space Demystified, The Night Sky with the Naked Eye, and Wonders of the Night Sky You Must See Before You Die. So going to your book, The Night Sky with the Naked Eye, what's the furthest away object or objects we can see uh, looking up without a telescope? So as you see our trajectory here, we started with the weather balloons and the space station, then we went to planets. Now I'm asking <laughs> to see. take me to the stars and galaxies. <laughs> well, with just the naked eye, um, say you go into the countryside here in the area, uh, and you know exactly where to look, you can see the planet Uranus. That's visible with the naked eye. And as far as the farthest thing, that's a great question. I would say looking at the Milky Way galaxy, there are stars along the band of the Milky Way, the very faintest stars that are several thousand light years away. And that would be the farthest thing that you mm. could see in the galaxy. But then there's one more level here. The very farthest thing that most people will see when we're pointed to it, if you know just where again to look, 
is the Andromeda galaxy. And that object, which looks like just a little bit of fuzz, two and a half million light years away. And we see it across that vast distance because it is an enormous object and it contains one trillion stars. So it radiates a lot of light. Uh, it doesn't look like much to the naked eye, but it is the farthest thing that most people would see. There are some amateur astronomers that have seen a couple of other galaxies that are a little farther away than that, but um, that would be the limit right there, which is unbelievable to think of it because that two and a half million light years distance means that the light is two and a half million years old. It left the galaxy that long ago and is arriving that night, the very night that you look up to look at it. So how do we know Andromeda is still there? Well, we know it's still there <laughs> because that is a drop in the bucket time-wise, two and a half million years compared to the lifetime of a galaxy, which is measured in at least billions and billions of years. So that's just a fraction of time in the lifetime of a galaxy. So there's a darn good chance that that galaxy is still there. You mentioned going to some of our areas that have the darkest skies, uh, both in Wisconsin and Minnesota. I think we have some uh, particularly dark ones. The Chihuahuan Nicolay National Forest is an official dark sky site. And on the Minnesota side, parts of Cook County have been similarly designated. In fact, they're having the Dark Sky Festival this December. Are you going? You mean December later this year? Yeah. In the Grand Marais? Correct. Yeah, I hope so. Mm -hmm. I usually go... Um, in wintertime, actually, the darkness of the skies in the area has gotten worse quite a bit in uh, the last 10 to 15 years because of kind of a profusion of um, lighting. Uh, there's a lot more lights being used now and erected. There's lots more home lighting, and it's LED lighting primarily, which is a relatively inexpensive technology. People buy these lights, they save money, which is great. But what's happening is that they're being overused, and a lot of them are not being properly shielded. And we live in a place, and obviously, where there's a ton of snow. And during the winter, those lights, poorly shielded lights, reflect off the snow and throw all that light into the sky. And I notice, just with my house, I lose a whole regiment of stars. Every winter, the sky looks like it's gray rather than being dark. And the Milky Way is really, really faint when it used to be obvious um, 10, 15 years ago. Hmm. So if you... Well, I'm thinking that the Shawamigan Nicolay National Forest is not a place we should see uh, LED bulbs or anything, right? So does uh, Wisconsin maybe have an advantage over Minnesota right now in terms of uh, being a bit darker in our area? You know, I'd actually have to look at a satellite map of the United States. They've got wonderful images of the U.S. taken at night, and you can see where the bright areas by, are. By so Chinese balloons, right? Well, yes, very sophisticated. <laughs> <laughs> but you can, um, you can see where it's darkest. And, for instance, in the Duluth Superior area, it's a brilliant island of light there. You know, there's a lot of overlighting. Mm -hmm. But as you move eastward across northern Wisconsin, you know, towards Ashland and you're down towards Minocqua and Rhineland and so forth, much darker skies because you don't have the larger cities. I do know that like Wisconsin, in Minnesota, we have an international dark sky sanctuary, uh, a combination of the Boundary Waters Canoe Area, 
Voyagers National Park and then a Canadian National Park. So it's contiguously, it is the largest dark sky international sanctuary in the world. Boy, we've got some of the greatest superlatives around here. The biggest lake and uh, the largest shipment of iron ore and the darkest skies, right? We are so lucky to have such dark skies so close to us. We are speaking with Bob King, a.k.a. Astrobob, author of the Astrobob column in the Duluth News Tribune and several books about astronomy. We started with weather slash spy balloons, space stations, planets, and... Uh, we briefly mentioned galaxies and things. In the near future, any interesting star patterns or stars that we should be looking for? There is one thing I did want to mention because it's been in the news a lot. There's a comet that's visible in the evening sky right now. This one could be the brightest comet of the year. It's not like bright where you go out and go, look, look, mom, there's a comet. Not like Comet Neowise that we saw a couple of years ago back in 2020. Mm -hmm. uh, this is called Comet ZTF, and it means Zwicky Transient Facility. And it was discovered robotically by a telescope that just takes pictures of the night sky, the entire night sky, every couple of nights. And then that data gets sifted through a computer, and anything out of the ordinary is flagged and then studied by astronomers. And so back in March of 2022, this facility uh, discovered this comet. And it was very faint back then, but it has since gotten much closer to the Earth. It's now past the Earth, headed out of the solar system. But tonight, uh, Friday night, you'll be able to go out if it's clear. And the forecast looks good right now. If you point your binoculars at the planet Mars, just to the above and to the left of Mars, you'll see a little glowing patch of light, a little fuzzy spot. That's the comet. And tomorrow night... If you look at Mars and the binoculars, the comet will still be in the same field of view, but now to the lower left of the planet. And that comet is traveling. Comets, sometimes people will think that a comet, oh, it shoots through the sky like a meteor. It streaks and then it's gone. But the comet is several, let's see, it's like 30 million miles away. And although it's traveling rapidly in its orbit, uh, it it's so far away from us that it just creeps through the sky at night. As I said on the tonight, it'll be to the upper left of Mars, tomorrow night to the lower left. So it moves only a little bit each night along its path because it's far away. Mm -hmm. Can you see its tail? Um, if you're if you have a really dark sky, yes, you'll see the bright head of the comet through your binoculars, and then it'll fuzz off to the north to the top. You know. And so it'll start to look more like a comet. They're beautiful to see just because of that shape. And almost as much fun as a Chinese spy slash weather balloon. Yes, but with no malcontent. We've been speaking with Bob King, a.k.a. Astrobob, the author of the Astrobob column that you can find in the Duluth News Tribune. He's also the author of several books on amateur astronomy, Urban Legends from Space, The Biggest Myths About Space Demystified, The Night Sky with the Naked Eye, and Wonders of the Night Sky You Must See Before You Die. Thank you for joining us, Bob King. Thank you very much for having me, Robin. It was fun. Coming up, a world premiere at the Minnesota Ballet.
Welcome back to Simply Superior. I'm Robin Washington. The Minnesota Ballet is set to present a world premiere tonight in Duluth, created by a dancer and choreographer who is himself internationally acclaimed. Milwaukee-born and bred Adam McKinney was recently named Artistic Director of the Pittsburgh Ballet Theater and is the longtime co-director of the dance and creative group DNA Works. His work for the Minnesota Ballet includes an eclectic mix of dance and musical styles, but we'll let him tell it along with the Minnesota Ballet's Artistic Director, Carl Von Robineau, and they both join me now. Welcome to Simply Superior, Adam McKinney and Carl Van Robineau. Thank you. Thank you. So I've known each of you or known of you uh, for years, but from very, very different circles. So forget about me. How did you two find each other? This is Adam speaking. Carl and I danced together at Milwaukee Ballet in the late 90s and early 2000s. And uh, when Carl was appointed artistic director of Minnesota Ballet, um, I, you know, I followed him and followed his work and have just been so impressed by it and have been honored to be selected to present one piece on the forward program uh, that opens this evening entitled Home Ablating Downstream. Carl, I wonder also if you might just speak about our collaboration with Lake Arts Project. Certainly, yes. Um, so I think it was a, one of those fortuitous um, or meant to be meetings with Adam and myself. Um, I, I always enjoyed working with Adam. And as he followed what I was doing here, I've been following what he's been doing with DNA Works for many years. And my wife and I had begun a small nonprofit while in Milwaukee. Um, and it was geared towards using dance as a healing modality. And uh, Adam was my first call when we started going in that direction with our nonprofit. And so he has been working with us in that uh, capacity with that project and uh, given us some beautiful choreography uh, that has also brought veterans onto stage where, uh, which is another direction that we've also gone with that. Um, and one of my first very memorable moment with Adam was him being new to the company and hurrying to get to rehearsal because he had just come back from a conflict resolution uh, seminar. And I just thought that just struck me um, in such a positive way that here was this young dancer who's interested in that. And he has taken that and um, just blossomed that into just this incredible career and uh, I believe it's going to be a legacy of conflict resolution, caring for one another, um, healing and trying to bring our community to a, a better place. All of those things I I am just in awe of that he has done and I fully support and have enjoyed um, every little part that I get to be a part of that. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm not surprised by that because, of course, I know Adam from African-American and Jewish circles and social justice thereof. So, uh, But I'm intrigued how all roads uh, lead to the Twin Ports. I mean, <laughs> okay, I didn't know you guys knew each other from Milwaukee. And then, Adam, you're all over the place uh, in Texas. And what are you doing out there? Actually, I am calling in from Fort Worth, Texas. I've lived here in Fort Worth for the last six and a half years. I was a tenured professor 
at Texas Christian University in ballet and just resigned uh, that position. And I'll be moving to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in about three weeks to uh, be full time as artistic director of Pittsburgh Ballet Theater. Mm-hmm. And tell us a bit about uh, DNA Works. Happy to. Uh, DNA Works was started in 2006 by myself and Daniel Banks, my husband and co-director. DNA Works is an arts and service organization committed to healing through the arts and dialogue. And we believe that when we centralize art practices in communities, this process is automatically healing because it has the capacity to bring people together, normally people who might not regularly be in contact with one another. And we've had the pleasure of leading uh, conflict resolution work and the arts all over the world, on the continent of Africa, Asia, in the Middle East, Mexico, U.S. and Canada. It's just been a wholly fulfilling experience doing this work as co-director of DNA Works alongside Daniel. Mm -hmm. And for tonight's performance, Adam, we have a very short promotional clip of you working with the Minnesota Ballet. Let's take a listen. Okay, one more time. One, two, three, jump and up. My name is Adam McKinney and I am a choreographer, a teacher, and a dancer. Are you breathing? Not at all. Yeah, no. Great, breathe. I'm a Midwesterner. I'm from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. One arabesque two, one arabesque two, one arabesque two, one arabesque Ballet is a driving force in my life because it offers an opportunity to view and be the best of humanity. So what was your impression of them? And you won't be here for the opening. That's right, Robin. Unfortunately, I won't be able to travel to Duluth for uh, the premiere of the work tonight and tomorrow. However, I did come to Duluth uh, several weeks ago to stage the work, and my impressions of the company are that the dancers are open and willing, very talented, committed to each other as colleagues, Um, The work that Carl von Rabenau and Jennifer Miller have done is amazing. In their short tenure there leading the ballet company, uh, I've just noticed tremendous growth in terms of the vision for the organization, as well as the talent that's coming in through Minnesota Ballet. I'm just really impressed. So congratulations again, Minnesota Ballet. We are speaking with Adam McKinney, the newly appointed artistic director of the Pittsburgh Ballet Theater, and Carl von Rabenau, his counterpart at the Minnesota Ballet, based in Duluth. The ballet is world premiering one of Adam's works tonight at the Depot in Duluth and another performance tomorrow on Saturday. So, uh, Adam, your work is titled Home Ablating Downstream and is part of the larger performance titled Forward. February is, of course, Black History Month, and as I mentioned, Adam, you're both African-American and Jewish, but this isn't necessarily a Black History work, is it? <laughs> it's a great question. Um, the work entitled Home Ablating Downstream is a Black History work in that the choreographer who created it is Black. That's me. The work looks at 
community relationships, love and loss, hearkening back to climate change and this notion of ablating that is like melting and eroding um, and is a mix of various musical genres from uh, Baroque to Mel Torme music to the Berry sisters who were well-known Ashkenazi Jewish Yiddish singers uh, and also looking at endangered languages as part of that notion of oblation. The work is, uh, I think, about 18 minutes. The dancers dance it beautifully, um, and there are moments that are heartfelt and moments of levity. So I'm, my hope in creating this work was to give audiences many ways into experiencing this work. And Carl, it's part of a larger performance, uh, which is entitled Forward, which, uh, again, drawing to all of our backgrounds here, at first I thought it had something to do with uh, one of my other gigs, uh, the Jewish Forward <laughs> newspaper <laughs> online, which comes from the Yiddish Daily Forward, which I'm sure you grew up on, Adam. <laughs> but it's not that. So tell us what the, I don't think it is. I don't know. <laughs> you tell me, Carl. So when I first came up with the idea of this program last year, I was thinking about how we as a community as a country were forging forward out of this pandemic that we have been uh, working our way through for the last three years. And one of the important things for me as a leader of an organization is to um, always be looking forward. We can get drawn down into what's right in front of us. And then once you have the opening, you don't know where you're going to go. So I was thinking about this is where we're going. We're, we're coming out of this. We're moving forward into it. The interesting thing about the program is that each of the pieces refers to community, which I thought was really pretty interesting. And that's that was something that wasn't necessarily intended, but um, a really lovely through line. Mm -hmm. We want to get an idea of that, and this is always a challenge to present visual aspects of art on the radio, but tell us, Adam, in your work, uh, you know, what we can expect from the dancers. I I'm wondering if the dance is as eclectic as the music that you've chosen. So you mentioned briefly, you got stuff by Archangelo Corelli, Mel Torme, as you said, the Berry Sisters. I think Bach is in there. Does the dance reflect that as well? I think so. I'm working inside a choreographic language that uses classical ballet as a basis and expanding the structure of classical ballet to include more contemporary ideas of movement uh, so that the static nature of classical ballet is is. Uh, larger and broader and perhaps off balance uh, and turned and uh, using creative processes to think about how to expand the form of classical ballet. And so what I hope audiences will take away is understanding or getting a sense of the ways in which I'm using my own creative practice to look at how ballet shifts over time. All right. Well, let's hear some of the music from Home of Lading Downstream by Adam McKinney for the Minnesota Ballet. Mm -hmm. 
home, baby, now. I'm coming home now, right away. I'm coming home, baby, now. I'm sorry now I ever went away. Every night and day I go and stay. And that was some of the very eclectic music, you appreciate my mashup there, from Home of Blading Downstream by Adam McKinney for the Minnesota Ballet. We are speaking with Adam McKinney, the incoming artistic director for the Pittsburgh Ballet Theater, and Carl von Robineau, his counterpart at the Minnesota Ballet. The ballet is world premiering Adam's work as part of his performance forward tonight at the depot and again tomorrow. Um, I mentioned this earlier, Adam, that uh, in Texas you were involved uh, going to social justice in the reclaiming of a uh, notorious building or edifice. Can you tell us something about that? I'd be happy to. Uh, As I mentioned earlier, myself and my husband, Daniel, moved to Fort Worth, Texas about six and a half years ago. And uh, upon our arrival we learned that Fort Worth had one of the largest, if not the largest, Ku Klux Klan memberships in the United States in the 1920s during the second iteration of the Klan. So much so that they built an auditorium to house more than 2,000 members right on Main Street, north of downtown Fort Worth. Uh, That building still stands it has gone through various iterations, including a uh, department store, warehouse, a dance marathon, auditorium, uh, a pecan shelling factory. And in 2021, we purchased the building and are currently in the process of uh, transforming the building into an arts center called the Fred Rouse Center for Arts and Community Healing, named after Mr. Fred Rouse, who was the victim of a racial terror lynching 0.59 miles away from the building in 1921. And so this work is important, particularly in the South, but also when we think about our narrative, our collective narrative as USers, and the possibility of healing from histories of racial terror, violence, and oppression. And we as artists are at the center of this call to take responsibility for how we want to move forward in the direction of healing. 
which certainly resonates with us locally with the triple lynching in Duluth in 1920 and the artistic response three quarters of a century later with the Clayton Jackson McGee Memorial now at that same spot. Carl, on another historical note, in a far more positive vein, we know something about repurposing buildings for the arts. Uh, Of course, I'm speaking of the depot in Duluth, which is the headquarters of the Minnesota Ballet. And also, this performance is the debut of your new space there. Can you tell us about that? I would love to. We're very excited to have the opportunity to um, take over what is formerly known as the underground theater uh, that the Duluth Playhouse has had for many years. And we're transforming it into a dance studio that will also work as a theater for us and for others in the community who wish to use it. Uh, We're in the final stages of putting down a new dance floor. We're putting in wings, lighting, sound systems, um, and it's going to be wonderful. We're really looking forward to the opportunity to have a space like this that not only we can use um, for multiple reasons, whether it be performances or fundraisers, but also then to open it to the community for folks who would like to use it, musicians, smaller arts organizations, and the like. As an established arts organization, I always felt that it was important that we also help to continue to create more opportunities for the arts scene that we do have in Duluth, which is thriving. But there are always organizations or individuals looking for more opportunities where they can showcase their amazing talents. Does the new space have a name? Is it still the underground or no? We are going to be calling it Studio 4. All right. And more information. How do we attend tickets, uh, contact information and all? You can either contact us directly at 218-733-7570, or you can go online to our website, and that will direct you to getting tickets as well. And that website is minnesotaballet.org. The number again, 218-733-7570. Tell us the performance times again. We have two performances. We have Friday and Saturday, both at 7 p.m. And Carl, are you uh, going to head out at some point and visit Adam at the Pittsburgh Ballet Theater? Maybe, who knows, choreograph something for them? Well, I, I don't know about that. Each organization has their their uh, their flow, so to speak. Um, I will be fortunate enough to visit um, Adam uh, at least every summer uh, because I do go to Pittsburgh to do some teaching there at Point Park University. And then Jennifer Miller, my wife, is actually from the central Pennsylvania area. So we do pass through Pittsburgh quite often. So I, I look forward to that. See, I knew there was uh, yet another connection in this <laughs> ongoing relationship, yes. which, uh, again, I've known you or known of you both for, I thought, 20 years, and you guys have known each other for longer than that. Yep. We've been speaking with Adam McKinney, the appointed artistic director of the Pittsburgh Ballet Theater, and Carl Van Robineau the Artistic Director of Minnesota Ballet, which will be premiering a work by Adam tonight at Studio 4 at the Depot and again tomorrow. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you, Robin. Coming up, the Regional News and Review.
Welcome back to Simply Superior. I'm Robin Washington, and we're joined by Rick Lubbers of the Duluth News Tribune. Hello, Rick. Hi, Robin. And Shalon Monroe, multimedia journalist for WDIO-TV. Hello, Shalon. Hello, Robin. So, Shalon, several years ago, the Duluth Public Schools went through a lengthy and controversial red plan process that had some schools closed and others remodeled. Now Superior is looking at closing or consolidating its elementary schools. Yes, it is. So in Superior, the district sent families a letter about the idea of consolidating their elementary schools after they received information from a 2022 survey that they did on the future of their elementary schools. And the results of that study show that their elementary schools are underutilized by 71% capacity. They are considering a significant budget shortfall in the district starting in 2024. So right now they're looking for committee members to come together, one staff and one parent from all six elementary schools, to figure out how they can consolidate these schools and go from six to five. If there is a decision made during these committee meetings, a decision will not go into effect until the fall of 2024. Well, like Superior Schools, many Wisconsin municipalities are facing budget crunches, but Minnesota's rolling in dough. The state posted a record $17.6 billion surplus last year, and some lawmakers want to give it back to the cities and towns, but others don't. Yeah, that's a lot of money if you really sit and think about it. In Minnesota, they have the LGA, which is the local government aid, and the CPA, which is a county program aid, which a lot of these counties and cities really utilize. Like in Duluth, 30% of their funds come from the LGA. And so right now, Representative Dave Lizard is looking to increase LGA to go to $150 million over the next two years. Now, Republicans don't want that gigantic increase. They're looking at a two-year cap of $30 million. A lot of these cities and towns within the LGA program haven't really seen an increase in a few years. Now, they had a little bump um, around 2007, 2008, but that does not include inflation, which we've been going through for almost the past three years. And if that bill is passed in the House of Representatives, it will go to the Senate for the next step in the process. Right. And I assume because of Democratic control that Governor Walsh would sign it, right? Yes, there's a highly chance that he will sign it. Well, also on the economic front in the business arena, the Northland Black Business Showcase is going on at the depot in Duluth tomorrow. So within this showcase, there's a lot of Black-owned and BIPOC business owners that are showcasing their products and some of their services to the Northland. Now, we know in Duluth, the population of Black people isn't really large. And then when it comes to businesses, that's on an even smaller scale. So this is an expo. It's going into its third year. It was an idea created by Kia Rani to really give those businesses a platform to expose themselves to the community. Some of these businesses have been in the area and people know about them, but not a lot of people know about others. And some of them are first-time business owners. So this allows them to kind of spread the word out about their businesses while also, you know, some of them go to other events. They'll go to various pop-up shops. They have an online presence. This actually puts them in a building where people can come and interact with the business owners to show the community what they have. Mm -hmm. Uh, Any particular examples? Yeah, so Timothy McCray, he owns the clothing line, My Brother's Keeper, and this is his first time that he will be attending the showcase. Previously, Duluth had 
a storefront that allowed eight businesses to showcase their products and services to the community. Now, that unfortunately did close, and then he was looking to see where he could go to really make his presence known in the community and not just on social media and social presence. So when he heard about this, this opportunity, he jumped on the first thing and he told me that he is very excited so that people can really see what he has. So he decided to be there for the first time. All right. Well, Rick, turning the city government in Duluth and maybe following the state's lead on surpluses, the city reached a new high on tourism tax collections. Yes, it did, Robin. Uh, the city's tourism industry took another stride toward recovery in December. Uh, Year-end numbers show annual tourism tax collections from hotel stays and restaurants and bar tabs rose nearly 11% compared with the previous year and more than 11% relative to the pre-pandemic performance of 2019. Some of these increases uh, reflect the impact of inflation, which drove prices up an average of 6.5% last year. But even so, uh, local tourism spending significantly outpaced the rising cost of goods and services. Total hotel and motel revenues hit a new high of more than $124.5 million in 2022. Uh, in all, Duluth's tourism tax collections totaled nearly $13.8 million in 2022, exceeding the city's budget projections by 14.9%. And total trips to Duluth rose nearly 4% from 2021 to 2022. All right. Well, heading out on the water, Lake Superior is, of course, full of water. But not necessarily ice. Not a lot of ice at the moment. Uh, an unusually warm January has left Lake Superior and the rest of the Great Lakes mostly ice-free. As of Wednesday, Lake Superior was just 11% ice covered, according to estimates by the Great Lakes Environmental Research Laboratory. Usually by this point in February, Lake Superior would be about 35% ice covered. All told, only about 13.5% of the Great Lakes is covered by ice. Uh, a satellite photograph taken Wednesday shows most of Lake Superior entirely ice-free. Thunder Bay and the Twin Ports Harbor show solid ice, but even the usually ice-covered areas of the Apostle Islands don't show as much solid ice as usual. The Madeline Island Ferry, for instance, was running this week because ice between Bayfield and La Pointe still isn't thick enough for safe travel by vehicles. Ice formation on the Great Lakes is entirely driven by air temperature and wind. Cold, calm nights form more ice. Uh, the average temperature in Duluth in January was 17.7 degrees. According to the National Weather Service data, 6.5 degrees warmer than normal, keeping the big lakes water temperatures above the freezing point. And finally, heading back on the land, things are really tied up in a town in Douglas County, but maybe not for long. <laughs> yes, uh, one of the town of Highland's heaviest attractions a 24,160-pound ball of twine may soon be on the move. Uh, the multicolored landmark currently rests on cinder blocks in a roof shelter at the home of James Frank Couture. The Douglas County man started building the hefty oval-shaped ball on April 3, 1979. Uh, he collected twine from the town transfer station where he worked for 50 years, and neighbors donated some pieces as well. After weighing the new additions to ensure accuracy, Katura wove each one into a densely packed ball. Uh, the thing is 10 feet high and 22 feet wide. If you look up Ball of Twine and World Record online, uh, you'll see Katura's creation comes up as the heaviest, and the attraction has been featured in news articles, magazines, YouTube videos, and even a CBS News segment with Katie Couric a few years back. Uh, visitors from 61 countries and states have uh, written their names in a series of ledgers that were kept over the years in a mailbox beside the twine ball. 
Quatero would tell every visitor he was having a ball, and he also made a 47-pound junior ball of twine that visitors could hold up for pictures. The Highland Landmark was certified as the heaviest ball of twine by the Guinness Book World Records in 1993. Uh, now, Quatero passed away on January 14, so neighbors questioned what would happen to his twine ball legacy. So a GoFundMe campaign has been launched to raise funds to move the ball of twine to the town hall and pour a concrete slab for it. I don't want to even ask how you moved a ball of twine. I'm going to just say that if they're going to roll it down the road, make sure there's something like brakes for it. (laughs) All right. We've been joined by Rick Lovers. I don't know how we can top that story. Executive (laughs) Editor of the Duluth News Tribune. Thank you, Rick. Thanks, Robin. (laughs) And Shalon Monroe, multimedia journalist for WDIO-TV. Thank you, Shalon. Thank you so much, Robin. You can stay updated on these stories and all your balls of twine stories anytime at WPR.org, DuluthNewsTribune.com, and WDIO.com. And that's it for this edition of Simply Superior. I'm Robin Washington. We leave you with more of the eclectic soundtrack from the Minnesota Ballet's premiere of Down Home Ablating by Adam McKinney. Stay safe, everyone. Mm-hmm.